From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palaznik. Governor J.B. Pritzker wants more money for the state's Department of Children and Family Services. Again, Pritzker outlined the idea during his budget address. The agency would receive $2.3 billion over the next fiscal year. Pritzker says some of that will be used to hire more frontline workers. DCFS will reach a headcount of 4,000 staff for the first time in more than two decades. DCFS has struggled for years on a number of fronts, from shelter capacity to ensuring children with special needs get put in the proper care setting. Governor Pritzker is asking for a much more modest increase than he did last year to the MAP grant that helps low-income students pay for college. State data show more than 60 percent of black and Hispanic students in Illinois rely on the aid. Lisa Corian Phillip reports. Last year, Pritzker asked and got a $100 million increase to the Monetary Award Program, or MAP grant. Lisa Castillo-Richmond leads the Illinois-based advocacy group Partnership for College Completion. It will only be increased by $10 million this year, which could mean lower aid amounts for low-income applicants, or it could even mean students being denied grants, depending on when they apply for them. Even with recent increases, researchers have found the average MAP grant covers just a quarter of the cost to attend a four-year public university in Illinois. That was Lisa Corian Phillip reporting. And the pandemic opened up a new opportunity for rural communities to grow, remote work. Quinn Adamowski is the regional advocacy manager for Landmarks, Illinois. He says remote work may lead to repopulation, but those small towns also need something interesting to stand out from the crowd. Preservation is just one of those things that is sort of just put on the back burner, right? It's just this nice idea. But really, it, it, it's a huge opportunity from an economic development standpoint. Adamowski says communities like Paxton, Alito, and Jacksonville are just a few examples of successfully turning old infrastructure into a new marketing draw. He says an old water tower or even a vintage gas station can be leveraged. I'm Jack Palaznik, WGLT News. I'm Jen White, host of 1A. This election year, we're a space to speak up. We're also committed to the idea of becoming better listeners. That's what 1A is all about, from WAMU and NPR. I'm Jen White, host of 1A. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. After everything that's happened since, you might not remember this, but in 2020, when the Michigan presidential race was called for Joe Biden, poll workers counting absentee ballots in downtown Detroit were besieged. Protesters stormed the vote counting center. They banged on windows. They yelled, stop the count. It was among the first places where supporters of then-President Donald Trump tried to thwart the election. Ahead of tomorrow's primary, Michigan Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson told our co-host Leila Fado that she cannot forget what happened then, and it haunts her now as she tries to secure the polls. What was real at that time was that inside our Detroit County Board, where Detroiters and citizens and poll workers were counting the votes and going through meticulous processes to ensure only valid votes and every valid vote was counted, they were 
in the room with hundreds of observers from both parties who were already watching. And so you had people from the outside claiming there was no transparency when in reality there was and there were people in there. And so that basic fact in a uh, more ideal world could have been communicated by whoever was telling people to go down to <laughs> the counting board and try to get in and try to see what was happening. Uh, yet it wasn't. Uh, we hope now that people will understand the rules and procedures we have around enabling people to mm -hmm. legally observe and not disrupt the counting process. Uh, and a lot of what we're trying to equip trusted leaders with is that information. What hasn't changed in 2024, and I know we're in primary season, but the anticipated candidates will be the same mm -hmm. if all continues as we have seen it. And the person that was inciting those voters will be running again. As Secretary of State, as somebody who had people come to your home and call you a traitor and call you a criminal, I mean, what's different about 2024 and how can you try to avert that from happening again? I think first what's different mostly about 2024 at this point is our preparation. Okay. In the um, sort of essence of the fact that we knew there would be coordinated efforts to perhaps disrupt the process, but we never anticipated they would have been at the intensity that we saw, particularly long into the post-election process after lawsuits had been dismissed and several you know, potentially legitimate queries had been rejected as meritless. Yet still, there was attempt after attempt, all the way to our tragedy at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, to still block the legitimate election results from being realized in Washington, D.C. We have now seen, and we have lived for several years, the depths to which people will go to try to reject democracy. And we are more determined than ever to anticipate every potential contingency, every potential arrow that could be thrown our way, including, you know, people showing up outside our homes with guns and be prepared with greater security with, for example, we want to have every poll worker um, with the, the ability to quickly summon uh, law enforcement or other protective authority if and when anything arises at a polling location or an election location. We didn't have that in place in okay. 2020 because we really didn't think people would go so far as to try to physically interfere with the process or the counting process. We know the adversaries to democracy may be more sophisticated and organized and have more support from foreign adversaries than ever before. We're also much more exhausted <laughs> than we were in yeah. 2020 because we've been fighting these battles in varying levels of intensity for years now with very little reprieve. I mean, this is now a dangerous job. Mm -hmm. What is at stake in this election? Oh, I think not just our democracy, but the very foundation of who we are as Americans is at a precipice in this election. And it's not necessarily only or related to or defined by the names of the candidates on the ballots, but it's really gonna be a question of who are we going to be and what are we as Americans going to accept as normal going forward. Are we going to accept leaders abusing their authority to spread lies and misinformation, even knowing that it could result in violence or disruption? And I think and hope that we can reject it and move forward out of this era into a time in which we can disagree without being disagreeable again and and, and respect each other's voice, votes, position, even if we don't agree with it. Because if we don't choose that path, then the path our country could end up on is one that has far much more division, 
rancor, noise, violence uh, than any other time in modern American history. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. A company that's constantly attacked for its effect on the climate is striking back. ExxonMobil is taking climate activists to court. NPR's Michael Copley reports. Every year, shareholders in publicly traded companies like ExxonMobil get a say in how the corporations are run. A shareholder can file a proposal, and then all the company's investors get to vote on it at annual meetings. Activists have been using that so-called proxy process to pressure companies to do more to deal with climate change. And that's irritating parts of corporate America. The main theme that companies have been watching for the last several years is the extent to which that activists have hijacked the proxy process and the extent to which the SEC has enabled them to do so. Charles Crane is an executive at the National Association of Manufacturers. It represents industrial companies. Crane says regulators at the Securities and Exchange Commission aren't doing enough to weed out proposals from climate activists that he says are trying to score political points. Here he is again by phone after a problem with the Internet. They are not seeking to guide the company through X or Y or Z climate issues so as to increase the value of their investment, which is what the shareholder proposal process is supposed to be. That's where Exxon comes in. It recently filed a lawsuit in Texas against investor groups that submitted a shareholder proposal. They want Exxon to slash the climate pollution from its own business and from customers that buy its fuel and chemicals. Exxon told NPR in an email that it's trying to protect investors from activists that file similar proposals year after year in an attempt to micromanage its business. But Josh Zinner says Exxon's lawsuit threatens the rights of company shareholders. Zinner leads a coalition of investors called the Interfaith Center on Corporate Accountability. This is really about intimidating investors, shareholders of Exxon, from bringing these types of proposals in the future. And Zinner says that because Exxon is so large, what happens there has consequences far beyond the company. The direction that Exxon takes in the energy transition has a big impact on, on how we collectively can move forward to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Interest groups on both sides of the debate say Exxon's lawsuit could unleash a wave of similar cases against activist shareholders. It's happening at a time when global temperatures continue to rise. And analysts say most companies aren't on track to meet targets they set to cut their heat-trapping emissions. Michael Copley, NPR News. ExxonMobil is one of NPR's sponsors, and we cover them the same as any other company. This is NPR News. Support for the leadoff on WGLT and WGLT.org comes from the Central Illinois Regional Airport in Bloomington, where Allegiant flies nonstop to Tampa. St. Pete, Florida beaches are just one flight away. Close, convenient, CIRA. More at CIRA.com. Normal City Manager says the Twin Cities need to address the missing middle in housing. It's one of the things you need to know to start your day for Monday, February 26th. I'm Ryan Denham, and this is WGLT's The Leadoff. 
Now let's lead off with the city manager of Normal, saying the issues raised by proposed state legislation to eliminate single-family zoning are important to the town, even though the measure would only affect cities that are larger than Bloomington and Normal. WGLT's Charlie Schlenker has more. City Manager Pam Reese says the Twin Cities need to address the missing middle in housing, duplexes, triplexes, and even quadplexes. And frankly, she says that has been a nationwide topic for decades, now brought to a head by housing and affordable housing shortages. A legislative wave of the hand is unlikely to have a quick effect. Zoning changes, Reese says, require other adjustments, such as larger lot sizes. It's not just a simple zoning change. That comes at a cost to property owners and developers. There's also neighborhood impact. What are the current residents' opinions on this sort of thing? So making zoning changes requires a lot of community participation. For years, she says, public officials have been told that increasing density by plunking down high-rises can raise environmental injustice concerns and create lots of pavement. Now, when they look at residential density, they have a different frame of reference. We're looking at it in terms of a walkable community, you know, access to services, access to health care, um, access to transit. Reese says she believes the national and local conversation right now is a reaction not only to community needs for a type of housing, but a desired lifestyle. The town is moving toward reworking its own zoning, a part of a longer-term strategic plan, but even community involvement and acceptance of new standards is no guarantee the changes won't eventually get pushback. Community buy-in to something new, she acknowledges, can be perishable. In any case, it's nothing that can be rushed. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Here are some other stories we're following in the WGLT newsroom. One person is dead following a state police response to a call about shots fired Saturday on Interstate 55 near Lexington. That incident shut down the interstate for several hours. Advocacy groups across Illinois are applauding Governor J.B. Pritzker's proposal to establish a state child tax credit. That credit would be 20% of the taxpayer's state earned income tax credit, which is a tax break for lower income earners. The final cost to renovate the normal public library and remove cancer-causing asbestos could be $5.1 million. That's the bid for the work that will likely shut down the library during construction. You can find more on these stories at WGLT.org. And now we'll turn it over to WGLT's Lauren Warnicke for a new episode of Datebook. I can remember being 12 years old, thinking this will never happen to me again. I can remember saying no one is going to protect me but me. And that's how I live my life. I never let my past dictate my future. I've always been very spiritual. I chase what's in the Bible. I chase what my grandmother taught me. I chase trying to do the right things so bad things would stop happening to me. I can remember running away. This is Anne. And being taken Artist David Dow created sculptures inspired by her and five other women for a solo show at Joe McCauley Gallery at Heartland Community College. Actually, it's not a solo show. Sure, Dow made the sculptures, larger-than-life amalgams of reclaimed materials, modeling clay, paper mache, and what has to be thousands, if not tens of thousands, of handcrafted and strung glass beads. The exhibition is about second chances. It's about resilience and rebirth. The title is Perennial Optimism 2.0. 
The overarching story is the lesson we can learn from nature. During the winter, we look outside, everything looks dead, dormant, dark. But with time and with care and nurturing, blooms start to occur. You see green, you see shoots, you see life coming back. And really the the lesson is for us as human beings, it's the same with people. I am still a work in progress and I feel like I will be forever and that's okay. All but one of the six women featured in the show experienced incarceration. All but one received services from the YWCA of McLean County's Labyrinth Outreach Program and Labyrinth Made Goods. The outlier is Macaulay Gallery coordinator Sharbanu Hamza. She and her sister had to flee the theocracy in Iran just to be women with a voice and to be artists. Charbonneau's sculpture sits at the gallery's entrance, presiding over it, in a sense, acting as curator and providing a counter-narrative to a different kind of incarceration. The physical distance from my roots did not sever the emotional ties that bound me to Iran. My heart, like a compass, continues to point back to the place I will call home forever. We imprison people. We take away their license, driver's license, their licenses for work. We take away their housing. Their ability to vote. Their ability to vote and their dignity. And then they get out and we expect them to be fully engaged in their community and contributing and all of that. It's impossible. My neighbor overwintered her yard by just mowing the whole thing down. Hostas, crocuses, tulip, everything just mowed. Just chaos. And, and hostility onto these plants, right? And you know what? They're going to make it. I don't have any regrets because everything that I experienced created the person that I am, the, the person that I'm going to become. I'm not finished. I still have so much more to, to do. That's the power of the show and of nature. If you look into your garden, you think everything is dead and you're going to go out with a shovel and tear it all out, you're missing the opportunity for these beautiful flowers and plants to come back year after year, but with care and time and nurturing and attention, they'll thrive. So that's what we need to see in each other. Perennial Optimism 2.0 runs through March 29th at Joe McCauley Gallery. I'm Lauren Warnicke. Support for arts and culture coverage on WGLT comes from PNC Financial Services. PNC is committed to supporting local arts and culture events in the communities they serve. Before we let you go, the Bloomington City Council meets tonight at 6 at the Government Center. On the agenda is a presentation and discussion about next year's city budget, kicking in later this spring. And that's it for today. I'm Ryan Denham. The show is produced by Rosalie Truback. You can subscribe to The Lead Off on the NPR app or wherever you listen. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Paul Brandt. Honestly, I appreciate working with BNA. I would just say that I appreciate all the tough times with me, patience uh, and and persistence with me. Paul's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic. 
a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. What does David D. Smith intend to do as the new owner of a venerable newspaper? Smith is the executive chairman of Sinclair, which is a chain of TV stations noted for expressing political views on the air. When Smith bought the Baltimore Sun, some journalists expressed outrage. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick reported for the Sun for a decade and returned to Baltimore to ask questions. I caught up with a half-dozen retired Sun colleagues the other day at their weekly coffee clatch. Among them, Kathy Lally and John Morgan. What do you guys do here on Thursdays? We get together and we talk about the Baltimore Sun. We talk about politics. We talk about everything you can possibly imagine. Today you brought something with you that you wanted to put on the table for discussion. Well, it's the op-ed page for the Baltimore Sun from yesterday's paper. And it kind of confirms some of our worst fears. The Sun first published in 1837. For much of its history, it was one of the nation's most prestigious dailies. Kathy Lally had been posted to Moscow. John Morgan edited state politics. The Sun now has no foreign bureaus and a dwindling number of reporters. There are about 60 journalists now, down from more than 300 in my day. All due to changes in the way people consume and convey news and the rapacious pursuit of profits by a series of out-of-state owners. John Morgan says the Sun's newest owner, a local, might prove to be the worst of all. It's fallen in the hands of someone who, by all indications, and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but he's out to set an agenda, use a newspaper to do that. That someone is David D. Smith. Former Sun reporters point to Smith's record. They say his flagship Baltimore station relentlessly reports on how dangerous Baltimore is, investigating corruption to the exclusion of bigger forces. Nationally, Smith's Sinclair Broadcast Group has taken on a pro-Republican and pro-Donald Trump tilt. A few years back, Sinclair drew notoriety for ordering its stations throughout the country to run an editorial echoing then-President Trump's attacks on the rest of the press, narrated by their local anchors as though it reflected the thoughts of each. Unfortunately, some members of the media use use their their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to to control control exactly exactly what what people people think. think. And this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. Smith declined to speak for this story through Armstrong Williams, his partner in acquiring The Sun. Williams says The Sun will focus more on stories that readers care about. You see more about crime. You see more about the mayor and city hall. And Williams says they intend to put more funds into the paper. We're not there to gut the operation. We're there to enhance it and grow it. Sinclair carries Williams' syndicated talk show on 170 stations. Williams is a conservative commentator and longtime associate of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In the short time since the acquisition, Williams has become an avatar for The Sun. His column now frequently graces the opinion pages. The Sun's articles draw upon his TV interviews. A lengthy guest editorial hailed Williams with a big picture right above Williams' own column. I asked Williams, what's his role in The Sun's newsroom? Any role that I want, that's the role it will be. I'm with owners. Smith has pointed to investigations on Sinclair and its local station, Fox 45, as a model. Former Fox 45 weather anchor Kirk Clyatt says one memory there stands out for him. We were talking in the afternoon meeting, and I said, I'm looking for two to four overnight. Meaning inches of snow. Clyatt says the station's then news director wanted more. 
And he goes, Kirk, let's make it three to five. And just in that statement gives you kind of an idea of the way the mentality was. You take a story, crime, problems at the school, and instead of going from two to four inches, you go from three to five. You amplify the negativity. Sinclair's Fox 45 reported intently on lawsuits that Smith secretly financed against a past mayoral candidate and the city schools, a fact disclosed by a rival, the nonprofit Baltimore Banner. What does all that portend for the sun? Life has gotten a lot more complicated. When a lawsuit against a restaurant owned by Smith's nephew Alex was dismissed, it was front page news. David Smith is a key investor. Former Baltimore Mayor Sheila Dixon makes headlines with a comeback. Records show Smith, his relatives and companies contributed $130,000 toward her campaign in a parallel political action committee. The Sun drove Dixon from office by exposing her criminal behavior. Its reporters later won a Pulitzer Prize for revealing the corruption of a subsequent mayor. Even so, at his first staff meeting, Smith said the Sun needs to do more to investigate local corruption of current officials. He's called another staff meeting for today. David Folkenflik, NPR News, Baltimore. Even by Alaska standards, Anchorage has seen a lot of snow this winter. Record snowfall has overwhelmed snow removal crews, shut down schools, and made roofs collapse. Here is Alaska Public Media's Jeremy Shea. Chad Hansen just used a big forklift to deliver three snowblowers to the flat roof of this one-story office building. The snow is thigh-deep up here and literally weighs tons. It's a blue-sky day, but with the blowers flinging snow into the air, the strip malls nearby look like they're in a snow globe. Oh, this is just fun, isn't it? Yeah. Did that one last night, now this one today. Hansen owns General Roofing Company. This scruffy crew has been busy since November, and now they're short a few guys. Hansen says they've been getting worn out. There's a snow scoop right there, man. Jump right on in. No, 30 bucks an hour, I'll get you up here. I get, well, oh, 30 bucks an hour, maybe. We get a side gig, maybe. Hey, you know, there's a lot of it to go around right now, you know? Yeah. At the end of January, Anchorage already had more than 100 inches of snow for the season, about twice the average up to that point. It was the earliest the city of about 290,000 has ever crossed that mark. Last winter was also unusually snowy, and since then at least 19 roofs have collapsed. One of them killed a woman at her CrossFit gym at about this time last winter. Daniel King is a city engineer who's been investigating the roof failures. So it's an evolving situation where we're trying to move as quickly as the situation is growing, as the danger grows. His office recently mailed out more than 7,000 notices to property owners and their tenants to warn them that their roofs might have the same kind of supports they've been seeing fail. Michelle Parton is visiting Anchorage in part because of the snow. She's checking out Snowzilla, a gigantic two-story snowman, a local built in his yard on a suburban street. She's from Redmond, Washington, where... It's been so warm that we don't really feel like we had a winter. And so to come up here and to see all your snow and your mountains is so amazing. Even though February hasn't been very snowy, there are still snow berms along roads and sidewalks all over town that are taller than most people. And there's more snow in the forecast. For NPR News, I'm Jeremy Shea in Anchorage. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Welcome to the last Monday of February. Thank you for listening to 89.1 WGLT. I'm Ariel Jones. And with this Monday, 
prepare yourself for sunshine, also highs in the low 70s. Early voting is now underway for the March 19th primary election, and you can get prepared by visiting our voter guide at WGLT.org. You'll find links to early voting sites, plus our latest reporting on important McLean County races. Visit our voter guide at WGLT.org election. Here's what's going on around Bloomington Normal. Easter Seal Central Illinois Midnight Masquerade Ball is March 2nd at ISU's Bone Student Center. The evening supports children with developmental delays, disabilities, and special needs. Visit the Easter Seals of Central Illinois website for more info. Submit your on-air community announcement at WGLT.org. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal, part of the NPR Network. Good morning. President Biden has a problem with Arab American voters in Michigan. They say they feel betrayed by Biden's support for Israel's war in Gaza. Can he win the voters back? It's Morning Edition from NPR News. The Supreme Court hears arguments in a case with implications for the Internet and social media. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Why are some scholars calling it one of the most important First Amendment cases in a generation? Plus, does this sound familiar? Congress has until Friday to avoid a government shutdown. What's stopping Congress from performing their main responsibility? It is Monday, February 26th. Happy birthday to the Queen of Neo-Soul. Erica Badu is 53 years old today. And the news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Talks continue in Qatar about a potential pause in fighting in Gaza and a hostage release by Hamas. NPR's Daniel Estrin tells us Israeli leaders say even if there's a pause in fighting, Israel will press forward with its offensive in southern Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still insisting that Israel's next military objective is Rafah. And as Israeli troops have been sweeping from north Gaza to central Gaza to south Gaza, this is the last part of Gaza, where Israeli troops have not yet entered. It's where Israel says most of the remaining Hamas battalions are left. NPR's Daniel Estrin reporting. Ukraine's president says 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed during the two years that Russia has waged war on his country. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. This is the first time Ukraine has gone public with casualties, although Western officials say the number is much higher. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told reporters over the weekend that the number of casualties has been inflated by the Kremlin. U.S. officials, however, say 70,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed, more than twice the number cited by Zelensky. He did not reveal the number of wounded or missing for security reasons, and he said 2024 will be decisive for the war. Whether we win or lose depends on our Western partners, Zelensky said. With weapons, we'll be strong and we won't lose. Ukraine is rationing ammunition on the battlefield as U.S. aid remains stalled in Congress. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. In the U.S., the death of a teenager following a fight in a high school bathroom in Oklahoma is drawing national attention. For member station KWGS in Tulsa, Max Bryan reports the student identified as non-binary. Hundreds of community members lit candles at Redbud Festival Park in Owasso, Oklahoma to remember the life of Nex Benedict. The 16-year-old died this month after a reported fight in a bathroom at the local high school, although police say the cause of death is not clear. 
Benedict told police that girls were picking on them for how they dressed leading up to the fight. Owasso High School parent Anna Richardson organized the vigil. She told the crowd that parents are responsible for instilling love or hatred. We need to start those conversations and our actions with love. And we need to start listening to our children. Benedict's death has drawn the attention of Vice President Kamala Harris. The vice president said on social media that she and President Biden stand with LGBTQ youth. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa. The chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, plans to step down. In a statement, she says she'll leave March 8th to allow a new chair to be selected. McDaniel had said previously she would leave the RNC after the South Carolina primary. This is NPR.